Welcome to Intentional Compliance in Higher Ed, a podcast of the Office of Title IX and Clery Compliance here at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. In this podcast, we speak of intentional compliance as a deliberate and purposeful effort to achieve compliance as required by state and federal law and guidance. I'm Ronette Sutton Gerber, the Director of the Office of Title IX and Clery Compliance, which makes me the University's Title IX Coordinator and its Clery Compliance Officer. And with me is my co-host, Danielle Evans, my Campus Investigator. Our duty is to ensure the University's compliance with Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, the Jeannie Cleary Disclosure of Campus Security Policy and Campus Crime Statistics Act of 1990, and the Violence Against Women Act, as reauthorized in the Cleary Act in 2013. In these podcasts, Danny and I and our guests will talk about campus safety, sexual discrimination and harassment, and sexual violence. We will talk about investigations, hearings, rights and options, and supportive measures institutions must provide to the parties. We will talk about Cleary geography and Cleary crimes and statistics. We will also talk about fire safety, timely warnings and emergency notifications, and the annual security and fire safety report. In essence, compliance to ensure campus safety and equity for the entire campus community. That's the discussion. And for today's podcast, we are joined by Dan Kinney. Dan is a higher education professional. He has been a college basketball coach, a director of athletics, and a chief of staff. He understands sports, coaching, and teamwork, with an emphasis on teamwork beyond athletics. In our discussion with Dan, we talk about collegiate athletics for men and women athletes and the effects of Title IX in athletics encompassing community sports and high school and collegiate athletics. We also talk about the introduction and the finality of the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women, the AIAW, and the move of women's sports to the NCAA in the early 1980s. We also talk about the importance of opportunity for women that Title IX provided. With his varied experience in higher education and with most of his career at UNC Pembroke, I couldn't think of a better first guest for our podcast than Dan Kinney. So welcome, Dan, to the Intentional Compliance in Higher Ed podcast. And you are our first guest. So thank you for joining us in this discussion of Title IX and athletics. So as you've learned, Danny and I are the Office of Title IX and Clery Compliance. I'm the university's Title IX coordinator and it's Clery Compliance Officer. And Danny is our campus investigator. You and I have talked about this a number of times. Title IX covers a host of issues. Um, to include sexual discrimination and harassment, um, which includes sexual violence, state and violence, domestic violence, stalking and sexual assaults. But it also covers our pregnant and parenting students and employees and our gender diverse students and employees. And more to the point for today, gender equity and athletics. And that's why I wanted to talk with you 
given your roles uh, here at UNC Pembroke and elsewhere, I couldn't think of a better person to bring on board to have an overall discussion of Title IX and athletics. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm glad to be here and I just hope that the number one reason was that I was around 50 years ago when Title IX started. I hope that that kind of maybe precluded other people from being your first guest, <laughs> but the fact is I was around when Title IX started. Yes, that, that did play into it as well. Well, it's amazing what 37 words, you know, in a piece of legislation has done and in, in my opinion, positively impacted our world and our country. And obviously, as you articulated, there's a lot of areas that Title IX impacts, but you know, for the sake of our conversation today, we're probably gonna focus on athletics. So why don't you start with kind of your introduction to athletics, both as a collegiate and as a professional in higher ed? and particularly with UNC Pembroke? Well, I don't wanna spend a lot of time talking about my high school years, but I think it is important to know that I was in high school from 1967 to 71. So as I was leaving high school and going on to East Carolina University, where I was fortunate enough to be involved with the college athletic program there, I could start seeing changes. I wish that I could tell your listeners that I was savvy enough to know exactly what was happening, but I was a high school teenager, a college freshman, and really did not absorb anything other than to know that when I was in college, in reaction to Title IX, an organization was formed called AIAW. And it became an all-female group of, basically it was physical educators and administrators that created a platform or a format for women college athletics. And they were sort of the organization that ran the first 10 years of Title IX. And um, there was so much irony involved uh, in AIAW, and I won't go into all of them, but I will point out two things, that this was a group of women that really said, we're not going to, quote, make the same mistakes that men have made running college athletics. We are going to make some changes. And um, I think there was a lot of wisdom in what they did, but Title IX, made them have to change. And I'll give you one example. AIAW prohibited women coaches from recruiting and prohibited women athletes from getting a scholarship. They thought that those two things would cut the endeavor. They got sued. They got sued because they weren't filed Title IX. So it was kind of ironic that a group of women started out to try to better what they thought college athletics should be. And that basically became a non-scholarship model, but that didn't kind of follow suit. And then the second thing was they were so successful in those 10 years in creating a product that the NCAA as an organization was kind of kicking and screaming. They did not want to 
embrace women's athletics, but they couldn't discount how successful the championships were. You know, give the devil their due, they saw the handwriting on the wall that Americans were gonna be fascinated with watching women's athletics. So in 1982, the NCAA basically sponsored 12 sports and they did their, their, their attempt to take over, which they were successful, who was going to run women's college athletics. And the thing that I will point out is AIAW tried to countersue. They tried to hang on. There were some programs that did not want to leave AIAW. One of them was Texas, the University of Texas. They had a powerhouse women's basketball team, and they did not want to leave. But eventually, the dollars caught up because AIAW, one last thing I'll say, and then we'll move on to another question. They made schools pay their own way to go to championships. So if you were successful like Wayland Baptist was or Immaculata, these are two small schools, they were kingpins or the queens of women's basketball. Those schools had to pay their own way to go to the championship. And um, one little side note, Wayland Baptist had a very, very generous benefactor that owned a fleet of airplanes. And um, Wayland Baptist women's basketball team had the unique distinction, they flew everywhere when they were going to play. That was something the men at Wayland Baptist didn't get to do. But it all came down to who was going to, quote, be able to fund women's athletics on a higher level, and it clearly was the NCAA. That's just a little bit of the 10-year, first 10-year history that I saw, because now I had graduated from college, and now I'm a college basketball coach, and I'm seeing these changes take place across the country. So where did you start your coaching career? Well, again, I went to school at East Carolina, and when I finished uh, my undergraduate degree, um, the coach that I had worked closely with, as he was an assistant, he got elevated to head coach. And um, I actually thought I was going to go back to my home in New Jersey and try to become a middle school PE teacher and, you know, just go back to northern Jersey in my neighborhood, and um, that's what... I thought I would do. And he called me up over the summer and said, how would you like to come back to school as a graduate assistant? And I said, graduate assistant? I said, that would be awesome. He said, yeah, you'll get to coach and we'll pay for your degree. Plus, we are going to pay you a stipend of $1,000 a year. Now, my dad uh, climbed telephone poles for a living. He worked for New Jersey Bell. And he had worked for them for 36 years. I was the oldest of six and the first one to go to college on any side of my dad's family. And when I came home and told my dad that I was gonna go back to school to get a master's degree, it was just mind boggling to him. And then when I told him I was gonna get paid a thousand dollars, he goes, a thousand dollars, you could make a thousand dollars up here driving buses, because that's what I did in the summer, I drove buses. So anyway, I got a job, my first job uh, was a graduate assistant basketball coach. I did that for two years. And then in 1977, I had my master's and I was looking for a full-time job. And um, the day Elvis died in 1977, I came to Pembroke 
and I was on my interview and every female that I met on my tour was crying. And I was wondering what kind of impression I was making on them. And at the end of the day, I realized the king had died. And that's why everybody's mascara was running <laughs> on campus. But I got offered the job. And in 1977, I became the assistant basketball coach. And I was teaching in the physical education department 11 hours per semester. I got one hour release time to be assistant basketball coach. And then my second year, I was elevated to head soccer coach and assistant basketball coach and was able to continue teaching 11 hours a semester with no compensation increase. That was the way of the world. And um, my friend said, you better get out of Pembroke before you're coaching every sport and teaching all the courses that are going to work. But I stayed at Pembroke for three years and um, those three years really changed the, the path of my entire life. So I was here for three years on my first go around and I have two more uh, journeys back at Pembroke. But in 1980, I left and went to Western Carolina. Did you coach at Western Carolina? Yes, I left there and um, I became assistant basketball coach there for five years. And really what my end game was, I wanted to become a head basketball coach. And I had tried everything to get an interview, not alone getting a job, just to get an interview. And I came uh, back to Pembroke in the summer of 1985 for a wedding. Uh, Natalie Gain, who was the daughter of then athletic director uh, Lacey Gain, was getting married. I came to that wedding and Ray Pennington, who at that time was the chairman of the physical education department, he pulled me aside and said two things. Lacey is retiring. I'm going to become the athletic director. And Billy Lee is, who was the head basketball coach at Pembroke, is leaving to go to Campbell. Will you be interested in coming back? And I said, absolutely. And I joke with people, you know, here I was trying to get an interview and it just kind of fell in my lap. And so in 1985, I came back to Pembroke as head basketball coach. And I remained in that position for seven years. And then in 1992, I left to become the head basketball coach at Winthrop. I did that for six years. And my mentor, really one of the three godfathers that influenced my career at Pembroke, Ray Pennington, Lacey Gain, and um, Howard Dean, Ray Pennington asked me if I would come back as athletic director in 1998. And I did that. I did that for almost 15 years. I was trying to retire and I woke up and I was chief of staff at a university. I did that for six years. So from 1977 to 2018, I had an association, active association with UNCP, and I still consider it an association now that I'm retired. We kept pulling you back. Yes. Wave would pull you right back. Well, I'm glad it's Pembroke has done so much for the Kenny family. I'll never be able to repay it. So I'm indebted to this university. So given your many years, again, as a collegiate high school, collegiate play, and again, as a professional in the athletic department, what do you see as the biggest impact that Title IX has had in athletics? Two words expand opportunities. Um, you know, I go back to high school 
And the girls in our high school that played basketball, they played 6v6. Um, it was a different game. They had two defensive players. They had two mid-court players, and they had two front-court players. It was a very slow, methodical game. And now you watch basketball today, 5v5, and you see some of the talents that, uh, you know, are playing at UConn or South Carolina or Stanford. And I'm just amazed because they got an opportunity. They got an opportunity to get good coaching. Uh, they got an opportunity to get exposed to weight training, you know, off-season, everything. So I just think that Title IX has expanded opportunities and those opportunities have branched out to more than just playing the sport. I think that it's transformed the leadership qualities of women. It has transformed the perception that women can lead in so many different areas. And, you know, before we came on this podcast, you and I talked about your profession, you and Danny's profession. Well, women were not welcomed in the, the law field. That was a change. And and I think that athletics has kind of been a pathway for a lot of change in our country. But that change is not a sprint. That change is an ultra marathon. And I think sometimes that frustrates people because the change hasn't happened fast enough. But, you know, when you got the law and culture clashing, it takes time. There's so there's so much change. And you said it even expands beyond um, athletics and in, in other areas such as ours and law. What about, um, what have you seen or what do you think the impact of Title IX has had on specifically PSU and UNCP athletics? Well, I think that the first thing is just the offerings. Again, I'll come back to expand opportunities. There's sports now that UNCP has in place that in 1972 did not exist. And I mean, I'll pick on soccer. Lars Anderson has done a fantastic job. He's the only coach the university has ever had. Multiple trips to the NCAA, but we didn't even have that sport until 1999. You know, Pembroke had lots of success in track and field and cross country, but we didn't have that. So those are just two examples of Title IX adding opportunities. Then let's talk about where the teams played. And you have to understand, there's a parallel. I, I think there's definitely a difference, but there is a parallel that the facilities at Pembroke on all levels have improved, including athletically. But when I came to Pembroke in 1977, what is now referred to as the auxiliary gym was then called the blue gym because it had a blue floor and a blue wall, and that was the home of the volleyball team. They were not permitted to practice or play in the main gym. It was kind of taboo. That's going to be the basketball facility. Nothing else is going to take place. It was terrible. The acoustics were terrible. The seating, I remember the coaches would have to, quote, get those metal folding chairs that used to have PSU uh, stenciled on the back of them. They would have to set them up and take them down. So those are just a couple of examples, Danny, that the number of sports offerings, obviously the increase in scholarships, having full-time coaches. But again, that was a parallel. The coaches all at Pembroke, when I got there in 77, 
they almost all were teaching a full load. They were full-time faculty members, and they also were coaches. And now there has been uh, some shrinking of that teaching obligation, and there's also full-time assistant coaches, too, in a lot of sports, which makes a big difference. Not to even mention, I forgot, I left one thing out. There were no certified athletic trainers when I arrived in 1977. I'm not talking about for women. I'm talking about for both genders. The coaches, because we had taken athletic training courses in college, we were the ones that had to tape the ankles. We were the ones that had to open up the training room and give our athletes treatment if they needed it. And that didn't take place until the late 80s that we got a full-time athletic trainer. Up until that point, we were fortunate if we got a graduate assistant or an undergraduate student that wanted to go into that field. So that, there's another specific example. But again, that was for both genders, not just women. Do you know when we got the athletic training program? The athletic training program probably was a hybrid because you could sit for an athletic trainer if you had contact hours. You didn't even have to graduate from a degree program. So if you were working for a college and could accumulate so many certified hours, you could sit. And then NATA, like a lot of crediting bodies, started really, really increasing the standards. And that's when Pembroke decided to go into offering an athletic training degree. But it kind of came parallel with the expansion of the Jones Center when they built the athletic training center. The actual degree program was kind of coming along at the same time to, quote, coincide with the improved facility. I'm trying to remember her maiden name. Uh, her name is McPhail now, but she was our first full-time athletic trainer. Gosh, I'm drawing a blank on her first name. By the end of this conversation, I'll probably remember it. And then Susan Etkins, who's still at UNC Pembroke, you know, followed her up. Kim, her name was Kim. I can't remember what her maiden name is, but Kim McPhail uh, was our first, you know, full-time athletic trainer that was also, you know, certified, taught, and that was in the 80s, late 80s. So we're, we're talking about a lot of the, well, I guess what we'd call improvements, or what some would call improvements with athletic programs because of Title IX, but we know that not everyone saw the implementation of Title IX as a positive in athletic departments. While I think the goal was to add these opportunities, the reality was you can't just add programs because you don't have unlimited dollars. Sometimes you do have to eliminate programs. And for student athletes and coaches whose programs programs are going to be eliminated, there's no way that this is not going to be personal and even personally professional for, for them. And it did lead to some, what I think would be situations where it became a, a we versus them. And I think some bad blood in some athletic departments, at least early on, and going to the 70s and 80s and maybe even into the 90s. And even today, when schools start talking about we're, we're going to eliminate a particular athletic team, I think hackles start rising and people get nervous. So um, I think that you're talking about a lot of what is transpiring here in the last 10 years across the college landscape. But if we go back 
um, to the 70s, I can just remember that same argument, Ronette, that you're talking about was being screamed really, really loud at all colleges. How are we going to, quote, fund these programs if, you know, we don't have any additional resources? The only way we can do it is to cut. And, you know, let's let's face it, there were some sacred cows, especially some sacred cows in the South, college football. And, oh gosh, the legendary coach at Arkansas, I know he was uh, Frank Broyles. He was he was adamant. He would get on the convention floor and say, you're going to ruin what America values college athletics because you can't cut these programs in half and give equal. But what happened over time, a process, because it was the law, universities found ways to increase revenue. And it didn't happen right away. I will also tell you that there was a fallout on the female side. And again, I come back to AIAW. This was a substory that is fascinating to me because a lot of college athletic programs, Georgia, I'll use as an example, they had a standalone women's athletic program. And when the NCAA decided to embrace sports and add those 12 championships in 81, 82, what these athletic programs said, well, we don't need separate athletic administrators or separate athletic directors for women. We're gonna eliminate those positions. So that was really the first blow that women leaders that were in charge of an athletic program that was separate and distinct from the men, they're now merged together with the men. And one of the things that they do in any merger is look to see where they can cut costs. And unfortunately for a lot of women administrators, they were cut cut out of the equation. They became assistant athletic directors. And I think that that's why AAI or AIAW fought so hard. They wanted to keep control. And when they merged with the NCAA, a lot of those pioneer female leaders were cut out of leadership roles, not in resentment, but it was just one of those cost dynamics. Now let's kind of move to what you're bringing up now, modern day. And I'm gonna get on my just straight opinion. That's all this is. It does not apply to UNC Pembroke. It applies across the board. We have a beast that has an insatiable appetite and that's college athletics. And now we have kind of hit the wall on how to feed this beast. And you, got the law and you have this demand that we're going to build these Taj Mahal strength and conditioning rooms, these Taj Mahal practice facilities. And you're gonna do it for both genders. I mean, I've been on some campuses uh, last summer, I was at Ole Miss, they're identical twins. I don't know why in the world they needed to build these practice facilities. I know the reason why, it's recruiting. They have to sell it. They have a fabulous coliseum where they play the games in, and that had capacity for practice. But no, you've got to quote, you used an old adage, keep up with the Joneses. So that's the real issue now, is what is the bar for what is needed? And I think that that bar has gotten so high that they've had to make some priority decisions 
And those priority decisions are to eliminate some programming that is very painful, as you said. And oftentimes it's reversed because of the outcry or the law is so difficult to interpret on the front end because you almost have to do it somewhat quietly because if you do it with full disclosure, you'll never get anybody to give you an honest answer. So it's a very complicated problem, but I think I, my personal opinion is the money has gotten so big that there's just no way to quote, keep up with what everybody thinks they have to have to be competitive in college athletics. And um, unfortunately, I think at one, one day we'll hit another really, really major downturn in the economy. And it's going to have repercussions in college athletics where there'll have to be some additional changes if everything's gonna to have to be done equitable. So sorry for going on that soapbox, but that has been a big change in our country with college athletics and it impacts both men and women. That does kind of answer the next question, which is what I tried to contemplate is why schools struggle or athletic departments in particular struggle so hard to meet their compliance obligations under Title IX. I mean, I, I, I hear you and I, I agree. I think we have created a, a monster, to use your term, in what athletics has become and the expectations for particularly certain schools and, and are certainly some D1 schools. Um, but even here at Pembroke, I mean, we, you know, when we're looking at compliance issues for these medium-sized schools, we're not building twin towers for you know, practice and, and competitions. And we are looking at our the schools that are the programs that we can provide our student athletes, both male and female. But schools do struggle to, to hit that compliance and, and try to stay above a, a Title IX complaint and an unhappy student athlete who's, you know, do I have to go home because I can't compete anymore here? And 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 I think that it's so much bigger issue than just in athletics. And, and I don't want to step on any toes, but I will go outside of athletics. Universities have expanded in other areas that just are not sustainable. You know, if you go back and look when Title IX was created and look today, and let's pick a category, let's pick university administrators. Look, I'm blessed. I was treated exceptionally well, but some of the positions that I held and some of the positions that I got to supervise, they didn't exist 50 years ago. I will just take the creation of colleges. That was not something that existed at Pembroke in the 70s. There were no colleges, there were departments, which meant there were no deans, there were no associate deans, there were no executive assistants to the deans. And expansion, in a lot of areas in America is something that we're dealing with. But to come back to the athletics, what makes it difficult is oftentimes the targets are moving. That's my opinion as an athletic director, that the targets moved, you know, because again, to get compliance, it's not a sprint. You cannot turn an aircraft carrier around in the middle of a pond, it takes some movement. And that's why I think that Title IX is more like an ultra marathon 
then it's the 100-yard dash. And so when the, the target changes, you're on a five-year strategic plan to achieve this prong of whatever it is, and then new regs come down or a new interpretation comes, now you have to kind of recalibrate. And that is not unique to athletics. That exists in the business world too. But it does present a challenge because sometimes to react, you have to make decisions that impact not only students, but they also impact the livelihood of people. When a coach loses his job or an administrator in athletics loses their job, that's that's painful. And um, so you're hitting the nail on the head. And again, I think that something has to give and what is the quote bar that we're trying to achieve? Because it will be heartburn if you lower the bar. And what I mean by that is what if we came and said, we're gonna cut scholarship opportunities by 30%, both male and female. We're doing it equitable, but that's gonna cause pain because now there's 30% less dollars to go around on the scholarship. If you eliminate a sport, and let's say you eliminate a sport on the male side, there is that resentment. There's that, that jealousy. Why my sport? Why not the other one? So we could talk about that ad nauseum, but I think that that's why Title IX, there was only 37 words. Remember, there's only 37 words, but how many pages have been written since then to explain those 37 words? And not everybody is a, quote, Title IX attorney. Some people are just you know, trying to be a coach or trying to be an administrator, and you have to adapt to the law. Oh, yeah, and just from those 37 words, if your title includes anything related to Title IX, explaining that to people, explaining what you do, you know, is even complex sometimes. So with where, whichever way we're trying to turn, right, whatever our goal seems to be or whatever distractions there might be, what have you seen just in general, what has been the biggest benefit? Well, I'm glad you asked that because this last segment we just talked about was a lot of the stressors, a lot of the emotion, a lot of what I think media could grab and say, this is why Title IX is flawed, why it's wrong. And in our society today, you know, it doesn't take much to, quote, get people riled up. But let's talk about some metrics about why Title IX has been beneficial. Look at any study that talks about student athletes. How do they do academically? That applies to men and women. How do they do occupationally or professionally? And I think that the third area is how do they do physically? And, and I, I know that sounds like crazy, but what I'm talking about is long-term for our health in our country, if people are exposed to college athletics later in life, they have a tendency, a tendency, not a guarantee, a tendency to be in better health. They seem to go into better careers that pay better. So I think that expanding opportunities for females over the last 50 years has really, really benefited them academically, occupationally, and physically. I wanna shift gears. This again is gonna be my personal opinion. I think that 
there is nothing like being on a team. And I can use the word team outside of the athletic realm. But when you have a team, somebody has got to step up and be the leader. And I can't fathom how many women have had that opportunity over the last 50 years in a formal setting to learn about what it is to hold other people accountable, what it is to be a role model. And for me, that has been the biggest, biggest benefit. And you know, Ronette and I talked about this, you know, earlier this week. You know, I've got a five-year-old granddaughter. She doesn't think one iota about I'm gonna do basketball, I'm gonna do soccer, I'm gonna do gymnastics. When my three sisters were growing up, that would have been taboo. So we have changed our culture where a young girl can think about any kind of sport and nobody blinks an eye. So those are a couple of what I would say are really, really wonderful, wonderful positives about Title IX. That may be hard to measure, all of what I said, but it's certainly not hard to measure academic occupation and physical health. There are studies out there that can, can verify that. Well, thank you so much. Um, I mean, for just telling us about your experience, because those changes, those cultural changes and values that we have now um, really couldn't be highlighted without you telling us about your experience and what it was like during your time, you know. Well, yeah, we'll come back. You had to find somebody that was around 50 years ago, and that was a short list. But, you know, what I will say is I'm glad you're talking about history because if someone is 35, they only can, quote, relate to the history that they know unless they are intentional about listening or studying it. I guarantee you there's coaches today, female coaches today, that do not know about AIAW. They have no clue about the first 10 years. They just don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Again, I come back, Title IX expanded opportunities, but we also have to remember it's an ultra marathon. It's not a hundred yard dash. I have one final question for you. And this is gonna be a reoccurring question in all our interviews. If you could change athletics, community, middle school, high school, collegiate, what would you change? How would you make it better? Well, I, I think that I'm gonna take a couple of approaches on this because we haven't talked about how important grassroots were to quote, embracing Title IX across the country. You know, it was communities that changed the cultural norms for women to participate in sports. It wasn't the law, it was grassroots communities. You know, I pick on Seattle, Washington, it became a hotbed for girls to play women's soccer. It became so competitive that 60, 70 girls would be trying out for their high school team and 50 of them be getting cut. That was unfathomable just a decade earlier. But the big problem is we put so much emphasis on being a successful college, high school, middle school athlete that that kind of goes into that feed the beast mentality. So if I could change one thing, 
it's at the earliest age, make sure kids don't get sucked into, you've got to be all that. Make it fun. That's what I try to emphasize to youth coaches. Stress the fun, the mentals, that participating should be fun. You shouldn't see a six-year-old crying because a parent or coach is screaming at them. And more often than not, it's not the coach, it's the parents screaming at them, you know, that they did, did something wrong. And we just have to, we have to change that expectation in our, our society. And then, of course, the last thing is there's just so much money involved now. Decisions are not made as a primary reason for the things that they were made for pre-Title IX. The predominant thing right now is cash, is money. And, um, you know, and women have benefited from this. I was shocked to read last year that women's basketball players on the college level have the second most NL ideals of any sport. Football's number one. Women's basketball have more NL ideals than men's basketball. There you go, Title IX. Thanks. That's a good thing to say. The money's not a good thing to say, but women are benefiting from it at a higher level than men's basketball players. So that's a good thing. I think we've come a long way, but we still got some travels ahead of us. And thank you, Dan. Ultra marathon. We appreciate Ultra marathon. it. You got to take one step at a time. <laughs> we are. We're, we're getting where we need to be. Thank you, Dan. I really do appreciate you joining us. Danny and I have looked forward to this discussion for a while. Please come back and join us. Well, I hope that you'll invite me back for the 75th anniversary of Title IX. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining me and Danny and our guest, Dan Kinney, for this episode of our podcast, Intentional Compliance in Higher Ed. This podcast was edited and transcribed by me. The content is copyrighted by the University of North Carolina at Pembroke and the Office of Title IX and Cleary Compliance. This podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship and is not intended to provide legal advice. It is to be used for educational, informational, and non-commercial purposes and is not to be changed, altered, or used in any commercial endeavor without the express written permission of an authorized representative of UNC Pembroke. The views and opinions expressed by the individuals during the course of these discussions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, and positions of UNC Pembroke or any of its colleges, schools, programs, departments, or divisions. While reasonable efforts have been made to ensure the information discussed is current and accurate at the time of release, neither UNCP nor any individual presented materials makes any warranty that the information presented in the original recording has remained accurate due to changes in legislation, policymaking, research, technology, and or industry standards. The beautiful podcast design is original artwork of Garrett Gerber, and the wonderful music was graciously written and performed by Jackson Wilds. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And go Braves!